BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the most unpleasant movie to look at that I can remember. I think this is just a, an example of what can go wrong when you try to build a grand scale movie and forget, for me at least, that the characters are all important. I was really shocked. I went to see it. I thought, gee, it can't be as bad as uh, everybody said it was as bad as everybody said. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to another exhilarating episode of What Went Wrong, your favorite podcast about everything that has gone wrong on some of your favorite Hollywood hits and biggest Hollywood flops. This week, we are very excited to have our first guest host, Matt Dedish. Matt is an editor, producer, and director based in Los Angeles. He edited the feature One Over One and the HBO short film Monday. Currently, he produces the director's trademarks and Through the Lens series for IMDb. Matt, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Thanks for having me. Why don't you tell us what movie we're going to be talking about today? Uh, We'll be talking about Heaven's Gate, uh, Michael Cimino's 1980 uh, or 81, depending on which release date you you adhere to. There are several. Um, Based on the Johnson County War, uh, it portrays a a fictional dispute between the murderous land barons and European immigrants of Wyoming in the 1890s. And Matt, why are you so into this movie? Because Lizzie was like, I know this guy, Matt, and he knows everything about Heaven's Gate. Not everything, yeah, but, Matt, but boy. Really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll tell you. Um, well, what, what got me into it was uh, when I was in college, I watched The Deer Hunter for the first time, and I thought it was really one of the most incredible films I had ever seen. And uh, of course, wanted to you know learn about this director and, and, and watch his other films. And, um, and that brought me to Heaven's Gate. I, I rented it on DVD from netflix this is probably in the mid 2000s and um couldn't make heads or tails of it like i thought it was spectacular but also uh kind of a mess and and then i started reading about you know everything that that happened behind the scenes and just became absolutely fascinated i think it's really one of those legendary film productions um where you know so much went wrong but then at the other end i mean when you when you look at what he got on screen and what what Shimino was going for it's it's really something else I'll tell you this. Um, it's it's visually beautiful, Matt. It is so long. Yeah. Like I, he, that thing is two hours too long. And I, I know it was like six hours to start. Um, but I didn't need to see fifteen minutes of Chris Christopherson on a yacht in Rhode Island at the end. Like there's a lot. There's a lot that could have gone. <laughs> yeah, for the audience, Lizzie and I both watched, uh, I believe, a two hundred and twenty-six minute. 
We version. watched a three hour and 40 minute version for those of you that can't do math like me. Yeah, yes. Uh, of the movie. <laughs> uh, I put it on this morning and I finished it 10 minutes ago. Uh, so very, very long. Thank you, yes. Matt, for that yes. saga. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, it is cool. Like, it's, that, it's not a bad movie by any stretch of the imagination. It's just too long. Well, I guess that's what I wanted to get to today is, is that this is not, this has been called the worst movie of all time. And it's, and it's, especially when it came out, um, it was notorious for being the disaster that it was. And of course, we're going to get into all that. But, um, but I really hope we are able to come away with this with an understanding of what that movie is, um, what it means in this really strange sort of 30 year trajectory it's had. Um, from coming out and being really one of the most hated movies of all time um, to having this kind of second life that it's experiencing now, thanks to Criterion. Yeah, I'm excited. Well, let's get started. Take us through what went wrong on Heaven's Gate. Sure. Um, <laughs> man, where, where, where to even begin? So I'm going I'm to do some table setting. Um, this was the 1970s in Hollywood. This is the auteur era, the new Hollywood era. Guys like Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas. Uh, these guys ruled the world, and they truly saw themselves as the, the great artists of their time. And by the end of the 70s, their egos you know, led to this era of incredible excess. Spielberg and Landis were competing for the most expensive movie ever made. Um, Coppola dunked on them with, with Apocalypse Now. <laughs> and, um, and around that time, a new face emerged, uh, Michael Cimino, with a film called The Deer Hunter. Cimino was a Yale grad. He had painting and architecture training. Um, he went on to become a, a very famous commercial director. He was known for his visual style. Um, clients loved him because of his really impressive visuals. Um, and, and his work was so, so impressive, but he became notorious for the amount of time he took on each production because he was a perfectionist about every little thing. Yeah. This adds up so far. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can, yeah. yeah you Feels can consistent with the movie I watched. Especially well, the, the painting actually, cause that's the composition of, anyway, keep going, but yeah. The, well, the painting, sense. the painting and the architecture, because, you know, yeah. all of the sets in, in Heaven's Gate and everything were, you know, were things that he designed. So, um, he moved to Los Angeles in the early seventies. He wrote, uh, films like Silent Running, uh, Magnum Force, which is, the first Dirty Harry movie, and then he did mm -hmm. Thunderbolt and Lightfoot in 1974 with Clint Eastwood, and Clint Eastwood allowed him to direct it, and that was his first feature. Very cool. And that movie was a hit. So yep. from there, uh, Chimino went on to co-write, direct, and produce his masterpiece, The Deer Hunter, uh, which would win him the Academy Award for Best Picture, earn him a Best Director Oscar, and, uh, wow. and yeah, this was only his second film. So with, with two movies, he um, cemented his place in the, the pantheon of great Hollywood film directors. That lasted about two weeks. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> uh, thanks to uh, a little film called Heaven's Gate. Um, the company that produced Heaven's Gate was United Artists, which was founded in 1919 by D.W. Griffith, mm -hmm. uh, Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, and Douglas Fairbanks. These were considered the four most famous people in the world at, at the time. Uh, and their mission was to allow filmmakers to control their own projects with minimal interference from the studio. That was what they set out to do. And over the next 60 years, they built their reputation as a studio that created classics. Uh, Some Like It Hot, The Graduate, all the James Bond movies. Oh, wow. Um, and they had three back-to-back -back Best Picture winners. And the Pink Panther. Uh, the Pink Panther. Yeah, they did all the Pink yep. Panthers. Yep. yep. Hey, those are great. Uh, yeah. they, they are. Uh, Pink Panther Strikes Again is, is one of my all-time favorites. Uh, <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, it's so good. Um, three back-to-back -back Best Picture winners, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Rocky, and Annie Hall. Wow. Uh, and that streak was broken by the deer hunter. 
So at that time, uh, there was a lot going on at, at United Artists at the time. There was like a um, big dilemma over the release, the X-rated release of Midnight Cowboy mm-hmm. and um, Last Tango in Paris. Uh, what happened was the United Artists top executives left and started Orion Pictures. And that left behind young executives who felt the need to establish themselves within United Artists and the film industry. And one of those guys was the production head, uh, Stephen Bach. Here is Stephen Bach talking about United Artists at that time. There was a feeling that we had these gigantic shoes to fill. We needed to make our own marks. Michael Cimino was a way of making our own mark. We believed. So there's nothing like the desperate need for a home run to lead to the biggest strikeout in like the history. I, I'm, um, I'm greasing the rails here. Yeah, yeah. There's, you know, there's, there's, yeah, you can see just how this might all have begun. So Bach saw an advanced screening of The Deer Hunter and rightfully was blown away by the film and immediately wanted to get into business with Michael Cimino. Uh, the two met to discuss Cimino's next film, an epic he had written, which he described as a Western, uh, but not a Cowboys and Indians movie. Uh, no. You know, Monument Valley, <laughs> you know, movie like a John Ford film. Uh, this was about immigrant homesteaders in Wyoming fighting against government assassins to protect their land. And it's just basically to clarify, like Western boring gangs of New York. It's like, yeah, like kind that's, of like, that's kind of right. <laughs> but, I think of it. So just for anybody that doesn't know, because I had to look this up, this, this is based on a real thing. This is based on the Johnson County War, which was real, as far as I understand. It was a bit confusing to start actually researching the war itself because he does take substantial liberties. He uses like real people's names, but then they're doing totally different things from what they're actually they did in history. But anyway, it is interesting if you want to look into the actual war. Well, and, and to that point, Lizzie, I mean, he, he yeah, he, he has taken liberties with history um, in his other films as well. There was controversy over the deer hunter because Michael Cimino said that he himself was in Vietnam, mm-hmm. uh, embedded with Green Berets and, and um, uh, you know, part of a medic squad, I believe. And when the film came out and he said that to the New York, New York Times, uh, they fact checked him and found out that he wasn't in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And that cast doubt over you know, a lot of the film, but when he won Best Director, that all went away. Interesting. Okay, so we know he's somebody that has no problem taking some liberty with facts, so that's interesting. <laughs> well, he, and we know that, and the press knew that at the time, and I uh, think that's an important point here, because he sort of picked a fight with the press over Deer Hunter that, that wasn't dealt with. Um, it was just kind of set aside, and mm-hmm. that would all come back to bite him. So... Chimino told Stephen Bach that uh, this movie, Heaven's Gate, would cost the same as an average movie. Uh, and, and, and like seven, and, he said, said seven and a half million dollars. Yeah. No. <laughs> the first scene has 5,000 people in it, just yeah. to, to let everybody know. <laughs> it's like 5,000 people dancing on the Harvard campus, <laughs> all yeah. in period costume. Stephen Bach was, was totally, you know, blown away by this. Um, he gave Chimino a huge cash advance. I think it was a million and a half dollars. Oh my God. Um, you know, in 1978 for his screenplay, his directing fees, and some of that fun. Uh, was to lock in Chris Christopherson, who would star in the movie. Stephen Bach uh, saw huge Oscar potential, and United Artists approved a budget of $11.5 million uh, for Heaven's Gate with an no. ambitious release date of December 14, 1979. Which and was, this was 78 when they're talking, or 77? They're, they're talking in 78. Oh, no my way. God. And they didn't start shooting until the beginning of 79. So they thought that he was going to make this epic 
and release it in time for Christmas mm. uh, on a on a budget of eleven and a half million. Oh, they're pulling the cats. <laughs> yeah, well, we're getting there. We're getting there. Um, they uh, grew the cast to include Christopher Walken, John Hurt, Sam Waterston, many others, and they were really ready to get going. Uh, and then the fighting started. The first battle of many between Michael Cimino and Stephen Bach came when Cimino insisted on casting the then unknown French actress Isabelle Huppert as the lead actress in the film. Interesting. Bach felt that her English wasn't good enough to carry the film, even after traveling to Europe for an in-person audition with Huppert and Christopher Walken. That's crazy because she's like easily one of the better parts of this movie. If she's terrific. And she's United great. Artists, they couldn't see it. Chimino could see it. He fought for her tooth and nail. Um, he wouldn't budge. He threatened to take the movie to another studio. Um, and, and Stephen Bach uh, was sort of desperate for an alternative option. Uh, he went to Diane Keaton and Jane Fonda to see if he could talk them into being in the movie and, and possibly win, you know, win his pick. Uh, and they both turned the movie down. So oh, interesting. Isabel Huppert plays, for those of you who haven't seen it, she plays a bordello madame who's romantically involved with both Chris Christopherson and Christopher Walken. Yeah, but in, she always makes Christopher Walken pay, which seems right. I think she's a it's a really interesting character. She's surprisingly modern in a lot of ways. I did read apparently one of the big reasons they were saying they didn't want to go with her is they felt like and this blows my mind that Christopher Walken and Chris Christopherson were both so much hotter than Isabelle Huppert that they couldn't believe that they would want to sleep with her which like what were they doing in the 70s I don't she's like the hottest lady anywhere near there and those two guys are so weird looking I think Walken especially because he's so thin in the, <laughs> yes. like, and he's like so gaunt. Uh, he's got he's a like very odd look. Massive amounts of mascara and then like yeah. a weird bowl cut. But sure, yeah. whatever. Yeah, there, there's pictures of Christopher Walken uh, towards the end of the movie, production stills, where because of his makeup and and just the way he looked, like his his head looks like a pumpkin, and his <laughs> yes. his eyes are like recessed. He's very scary looking. It's it's really actually a disturbing uh, yeah. shot of of Walken. Super hot though. Lizzie, let me ask you something. You've got a moderately successful podcast that requires you to watch a boatload of movies, right? Yep. Okay, so how do you find time to cook healthy, affordable meals? I don't. I've been eating delicious, ready-to-eat meals from Factor. They're chef-crafted, dietitian approved and delivered right to my door. Okay, but do they have snacks and smoothies, the only two things that my daughter currently eats? Uh, they sure do. There are over 35 different options every week to choose from, including keto, calorie-smart, veggie, and vegan for you and your vegan child. And the best part is when you sign up, you save money because Factor is less expensive than takeout. The napkin math checks out. I actually did it. Factor gets you a two-minute restaurant-quality meal on the table with no prep and no mess. Until my daughter throws it on my face. It's flexible for any schedule. Choose between 6 to 18 meals per week, and you can pause or reschedule anytime. So head to factormeals.com slash www50 and use code www50 to get 50% off. www50 at factormeals.com slash www50 to get 50% off. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. 
<laughs> okay, so 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 he gets Super, he gets the actress that he wants. So yeah, what, basically what happened is that um, Stephen Bach went to the, um, the the international chief at United Artists, um, who said that uh, he felt that Huppert was known internationally enough that they could make back their investment overseas. Um, and by this point, Bach knew that Chimino had the upper hand and, and had no choice left but to greenlight the casting of Huppert. Um, and so with that, Heaven's Gate was set to begin production. Um, here's Michael Chimino on his approach to shooting the film. I don't believe in storyboarding. I want to be free in a 360-degree space. You want to get to the real world. After all, movies have something essentially magical about them. You're creating a nostalgia for a past that never existed. I like the sentiment, but not storyboarding. (laughs) Like, epic war scenes and dance sequences seems uh, troublesome at some level. Well, we'll we're, this is you know. See, now comes the fun stuff where we where we can actually talk about uh, what he was doing instead, and and how, without seemingly storyboards, he was able to achieve the the vision that um, that I think he does. Um, on April sixteenth, nineteen seventy nine, just one week after Chimino took home the best director for Deer Hunter, filming began on Heaven's Gate. So wow. that honeymoon was short lived. Oh no. <laughs> Uh, by the sixth day of filming, the production was five days behind schedule. Oh. What? Oh, no. <laughs> um, so unlike other troubled productions of the time, like Jaws, Apocalypse Now, Sorcerer, uh, Heaven's Gate wasn't struck by acts of God. Uh, it was just Chermino's perfectionism that, that was the real issue. And I'm going to run down a list of examples of, of things that he did in the pursuit of his art. Great. Chimino personally interviewed 300 horses for the film. <laughs> Chimino would pick and arrange his extras one at a time. Wait, Matt, you can't gloss over him interviewing 300 horses. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, all right, let's just stop, let's just stop right there. Uh. Um, but he was very meticulous in, in every single costume. I mean, there's, this whole, there's a lot of stuff that I don't even think we have time for. There's this whole anecdote about how they got all the top hats for the beginning of the movie, that they didn't make those top hats anymore, so they had to find some place in Europe, I think, that, that was able to fire up their factory and make them, you know, how many thousand, uh, thousands of top hats that get thrown in that, that opening sequence. So yeah, I mean, like that's, but that's that's a glimpse into sort of the the, the you know Chimino's thinking. I mean, every setup required uh, hours, if not a full day, of very meticulous placing of extras of of props. Um, he would just line up all the extras and then go down one by one and place each person in the frame the way that he wanted to do it. And he was painting in front of the camera mm-hmm. with people. Yeah one person at a time, very slowly, very meticulously. Um, the train, that, that train that's in the film, yeah. he had that rerouted specifically for the production, so they had to bring this whole train in. Um, the cast took six weeks of roller skating lessons, horseback riding, <laughs> weapons training, dance lessons. They called it Camp Chimino. So he was paying <laughs> for all these people to learn how to do all this stuff for the film. I will say the crowd scenes are so well done, though. Like every shot yeah. feels lived in and real. And you can look at anyone in the frame and they're doing something, you yeah. know, related to the Arab. It's, yep. it, so nightmare to be involved, <laughs> but it looks great. Oh, and like, also, the like roller skating was, yeah, they were really good at roller skating. I was they very were impressed. At roller skating. <laughs> also, the thing with the crowds that I kept noticing is like, this is the first time where I've seen a depiction of that era of America, particularly in the West, where it looks so 
crowded. Like you always yeah. see these big, open, you know, beautiful, wide expanses. In this movie, you understand like how gross those expos yeah. must have been, how jam packed people were when they were trying to get out there. And it's like that that was impressive. And that was a different experience. And they're dirty. And they a lot of them are speaking with accents. And they're yeah. speaking different languages. Like, yeah, there was a lot that I really appreciated with his attention to detail, for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's electrifying to look at. I mean, every shot really has something to say, and mm-hmm. it's overwhelming. Yeah. Like, it's it's exhausting, and, and actually, I think it's probably too epic mm-hmm. uh, if, if, if such a thing could exist. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know. Chimino sent uh, all of the women who played the prostitutes in the film to live in a brothel for a week. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, now the, I'm out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it, it gets worse, believe me. I'm, I'm just warming up here. Um, there's a set in the film. Um, it's near, I think, a lake, and you can see, like, the church in the background, and it's, mm-hmm. it's sort of this big exterior set. Um, Chimino had that set built specifically to specifications that he had drawn up, um, and when he saw it all built, realized that uh, it, it didn't look right to him. Um, it was... The, 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 the road was six feet too wide or something like that. And so at the cost of a, a million dollars, tore the whole thing down, his big set, and then rebuilt God. it, you know, putting oh them further behind schedule. Um, Chimino had an irrigation system built under the land where they shot the big battlefield scene at the end so that the grass would stay vividly green so what? that when oh, wow. he poured blood on it at the end, it would be a contrast. Um, you literally can't even see the grass in the scene at the end. It's just dust. It's all dust and sepia tones. Smoke, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly, exactly. Um, that battle sequence, the location for it was three hours from the nearest town or where they had their production headquarters. So oh. they had to oh bring well, that's in why he all the horses. In any direction, you can't see anything except for mountains. Like That's, that's right. Well, yeah. that's probably why I wanted it, but what a pain. Well, it's cool, because it, but you get the right effect because it's this like circular firing squad. It's like they're, right. you know what I mean, like rounding it over and over again. And so it is incredible Like when you see it. So Chimino would shoot 50 takes of many shots um individual scenes he would spend all day working on he would wait all day just for the right cloud to come into frame um so he could roll so he's like terrence malick plus david fincher plus a painter and an architect like all in one person basically got it that's that's pretty accurate yeah um, Chimino shot more than uh, 1.3 million feet of film. Uh, that's 220 hours of footage. And his goal there was to shoot more film than than um, Coppola did on Apocalypse Now. Oh, I don't think he beat what it a goal! Coppola shoot 1.5 million. Uh, I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. So Chimino second place. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this was the film debut of Willem Dafoe, who was supposed to have a much larger role in the film, but during a long lighting setup, he laughed out loud at a joke that an extra told him, and Michael Cimino heard it and was so annoyed that he fired Dafoe on the spot. What? Is he in the final film? Do we see him in the final film? You see him. I will text you guys a picture that I took last night. I I recognized a lot of people, and I was really proud of myself, but I didn't recognize him. Um, he was uncredited in the final cut. And the irony there is that they made a documentary many years later about the making of this film, and he's the narrator of the documentary. That's so awesome. Nonetheless. <laughs> Uh, John Hurt spent so much time waiting around with nothing to do that he went and made The Elephant Man, 
and then came back to shoot more scenes. No, oh my God. The shot of Chris Christopherson waking up from drunken sleep and, and cracking that whip at a group of men took 52 takes uh, in a full day of filming. It might have even taken more than that. I think in the clip that we're about to play, Jimino says that it, it, they did more than 60 takes. Oh um, that shot lasts for about a second in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, here's Michael Cimino talking about that scene. Cracking a bullwhip and not kill somebody in the attempt to crack it, that took some 65 takes to get that right. It was just an incredibly difficult thing to do. So all I'm saying is that there were certain things that required a lot of footage simply because of the nature of the thing being shot. 65 takes. Yeah, that's it's a lot for an insert, basically. I literally don't even remember that shot in the movie. I do. I thought it was cool that he had a whip on him, but it, I, I was yes, yeah. It, well, that he really whipped it, and it was yeah. like inches from that guy's face. Yeah, I mean, it's I, a it was really pretty shocking. Incredible shot, but it is. Man, yeah. How long did it take him to get it right, and how many times did that guy get whipped in the face? Yeah, yeah that's, that's the real, real question. question. <laughs> um, Chris, from your perspective as a film director, how unusual or or usual is this behavior that Chimino was showing? I can say I think the impulse is extremely usual and normal, like the impulse to. If you don't believe it on set, then you just you know you'll never believe it, no matter how many times you watch it in post. I think that the difference is you usually have producers and a first assistant director there saying there's no not going to be any more money, and so what you're doing right now is costing yourself time down the line. But it seems like with Chimino, maybe there wasn't he knew the tap wasn't going to get cut. You know what I'm saying at a certain point, so he could take that luxury. Um, I certainly have shot things where it's like the, it's going to be one half a second in the final product. And I'm like, but it's not right. And it just kills you when you're doing it to settle for it. So I can sympathize with that. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's just amazing what, uh, how well he put the screws to United Artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, he knew the power position that he was in. He took advantage, I think, of the fact that, that he knew that United Artists wasn't going to micromanage him um, and that he was dealing with young executives who didn't have the experience or the clout to say no to him. Mm-hmm. And so he knew how to take advantage. Yep. United Artists was wondering why they, they were paying so much to rent the land where they were filming. And Stephen Bach went to Wyoming and found out that the owner of the land was Michael Cimino. He had gone to Wyoming, or sorry, he had gone to Montana, purchased 152 acres, and then rented the land back to the studio at a hugely inflated rate. Oh my like, god! Playing, he probably he bought the land games. with the advance that they gave him too. On like, oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, in, in a brand new Jeep. Um, and then he put that irrigation system in. And so uh, Bach knew that they were in serious financial trouble as the budget rocketed past the $11.5 million with no end in sight. And so he confronted Chimino over the runaway production. Uh, Chimino said he was making a masterpiece and once again asserted that he could take his film to, the, to any other studio. Um, but this time Bach called his bluff. And he called all of the other studio heads and said, hey, do you want this? Because we don't. Whoa, and they all, and they wow. all said no. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Oh. Uh-oh. So I got to give Bach some credit there. That's a, yeah. yeah. He, he, played a, he played a power move. And yeah. So here's where that, that move landed them. They basically had several options. Uh, first option was to pull the plug on the film completely and write it off as a loss, which yeah. would have been a big hit, but they were ready to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, they could fire Chimino and replace him with uh, another director. And Stephen Bach, the rumor is, Stephen Bach went to David Lean, 
and said, Hey, we've got this movie. Mm-hmm. I think you're, you know, this director is really something else, but he's, he's gone mad. Um, can you come in and take this film over, you know, for him? And David Lean said, no way. Yeah. Um, and then the third option um was to continue on but with tighter restrictions and that's the option they chose um at this point still holding on to the hope that chimino was in fact making a masterpiece and would win them an oscar well and i bet you that the dailies looked great you know so like that's what's got to give you hope is like you're watching footage and it's like the performances are good The, the vistas are some of the most incredible things i've ever seen like like it surpasses the best you know you've watched game of th- shows with scope now you watch a movie you know you watch game of thrones whatever chimino does more in yeah. a shot of a you know carriage moving across a field of poppies with the you know mountains in the backgrounds than they can do with a dragon and an army in terms of showing off cinematic scale so like they have to be believing like there's something, you know what I mean, here. Like, we can't just throw this all away. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. The, the footage was amazing. They knew it. Um, the, the rumor, or sort of the rumor that they were passing around town, Stephen Bach and the, and the United Artists execs, was that it looked like David Lean had gone to make a Western. Mm-hmm. And so it was an irony that they went to David Lean to actually take over the movie because they actually thought it was on the level of a David Lean movie, which, which says a lot about Michael Cimino. All right, so here's so here's how it went down from here. Bach demanded that Chimino follow a new faster schedule, which they would control, as well as a new budget of $25 million, which they would be auditing daily. Uh, United Artists would also take over as the production company um, and assume full control over the film. Chimino really didn't have any other choice at this point but mm-hmm. to agree and was only halfway through, not even halfway through making the film at, at this point. And so he said, sure, and, uh, and the filming continued. He said something to his producer at this point that is very indicative of everything going on, which was uh, tell the studio what they want to hear and then go do what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Oh, he, wow followed that the whole way through. Yep. But the one issue at this point was that it was very clear that the film would not be ready for its 1979 Christmas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, no, no duh, no duh. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they pushed the release date back a year so Chimino could finish the film. And then the mayhem truly began. Okay, I know you guys don't usually play clips from the film, but I just wanted to give a taste of how unbelievably loud, noisy, violent, insane that last 40 minutes of the movie yeah. is. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Second, it's basically up. like just unedited gunshots uh, and like just... It's insane. And like dynamite and like weird mercy killings and like it's just like everything. It just so many women getting shot too like it's oh, yeah. very horribly violent uh people the shooting themselves in the head yeah uh, like spoilers uh christopher walken getting shot 750 <laughs> times yes. in a row as he's making his last stand i kept being like okay he's done and then it just they no. kept coming back to him yep i mean going. Oh, a lot of carnage. A lot of carnage. Uh, the one that always sticks out to me is the guy that gets his legs run over. Yes! Yes! Cart and thing and the lady shoots him. <laughs> That's oh, yeah. Killing. He's not yep. dead. <laughs> no, he's like, he's like, he's... I'll be fine. My legs are just broken. And she's like, you're useless. <laughs> In the back of the head. Like, honestly, he was going to be okay. <laughs> uh, my favorite guy was the like war stenographer who's like sitting in the middle of the encampment as everyone's getting killed around him. And he's just literally 
literally taking notes on like what's happening in the battle at his like little fold up table. My favorite is John Hurt just being drunk and completely useless in the middle. And then of just the gets yeah. shot like, in the face. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So here's here's where things get really interesting. Um, up to this point, United Artists was somehow able to keep all of this out of the press and under wraps. Um, but in September of 1979, Bach woke up to a huge surprise thanks to this guy named Les Capet. Les was a former Wall Street Journal staff writer who turned freelance and moved to Montana for a change of pace. Oh, happened no. to move to Montana. And he's there writing for local papers and doing freelance jobs when this Heaven's Gate production rolls into his little town. Oh, man. And so he goes to the production company and requests an interview with Michael Cimino to do what he thought was just going to be a puff piece about the movie for the local paper. And they denied him very rudely, uh, very arrogantly. And so what Les Capet did was um, got a job as an extra on the movie and spent months on set recording everything he saw. He, he put this expose out called Shootout at Heaven's Gate. It was picked up nationally, so this became a, a national news story overnight. And the stuff that he talked about had a lot to do with high turnover rate, dangerous working conditions for actors. He was talking about extras falling out of wagons, uh, extras falling off of horses, horses crushing extras' feet. There was one day where he recorded 16 violent injuries, uh, extras passing out from the amount of smoke used in the interior scenes. Now, these extras were locals in this town, and a lot of them were families who would bring, you know, a father, son, a son you know, like wife. Mm-hmm. They, they would bring the whole family unit to be extras in the film. There's a lot of children in the background of these scenes, yeah. too, mm-hmm. and they're all covered in mud. They're all in these horrible um, locations and, and interiors that are all smoked out, and they would be passing out all day long and then quitting. Um, and then... And I think this got him, this was the part that he got into some trouble about um, the actual shooting permit, but he was using real slaughtered animals on set in these restricted areas of Montana that um, you weren't allowed to slaughter animals because of uh, bear attacks. And he had all these (laughs) slaughtered animals all over that were essentially just bait uh, waiting for for, uh, a a bear attack. Oh my God. Excessive is an understatement at this point in regards to Chimino and and the production. Um, Some folks in the makeup department said that the violence that they were seeing was the most gruesome they'd ever seen on a movie. And they told the extras not to take their children to the movie when it was released. And this started a media frenzy. The other things that came to light around this time uh, as well, and be forewarned, these are truly awful things. Um, Talking about the animal abuse that Mm -hmm. occurred on set. Yeah. Um, trip wires were being used to flip horses mid-gallop, a practice that had been discontinued in Hollywood for years because they were deadly to the horses. Uh, Real horse blood instead of fake blood on all the actors. So all that blood you see in the movie is real blood. It's horse blood. Uh, Live horses were bled from the neck without giving them pin pillars so that their blood could be collected and smeared on actors in the scene. Um, The American Humane Association asserted that four horses were killed and and many more were injured during a battle scene. Uh, One of the horses was blown up with dynamite and that shot is in the movie. I was wondering, there is a shot. I saw the shot there where I was like, what? Just like a whole wagon and horse just yeah, goes up. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. It's when the yeah. wagon is, it's in the circle, it's at the end, it's coming towards you and it looks like the entire thing blows sideways and yeah, flips yeah. over. And I was like, there's no way that they faked that. Like that, yeah. 
Oh God. And, and these things are a lot of these things anyways, they're are, are indisputable. Um, Michael Cimino would dispute a lot of the things that, that I've said just about the behind the scenes of the production. Um, but these things that we're talking about right now do actually appear in the movie. Um, actual cockfights, decapitated chickens, mm-hmm. uh, a group of cows disemboweled to provide fake intestines for the actor. I think that's that opening scene where, yeah. um, where, where Christopher Walken, right. Uh, he shoots, shoots the, guy. the guy yeah. mm-hmm. through the um, sheet at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So this movie heaven's gate forced the american Humane association to monitor the use of animals in all film and television moving forward and this movie is the reason we have the no animals were harmed during the making oh. of this film oh this my at the end of all films. i always assumed it was uh, milo and otis the, like <laughs> oh, yeah. horrible japanese production that, like where they were just like throwing through, puppies like, off of cliffs like cats. yeah yeah like, unfortunately chimino wasn't the only one uh doing this kind of stuff um throughout the history of film and, and there's a whole thing about that but this movie i think really put an end to that in a big way um even though a couple things have even happened recently um okay so march of 1980 as the dust settled on production chimino retreated to an edit bay for months to prepare a work print of the film for united artists execs to see he had spent more than 30 million dollars by this point and now had 220 of hours of footage to sort through Box says in his memoir that Chimino had the, the locks changed on the edit bay and an armed guard uh, stationed in front of the door at all times, although Chimino would uh, dispute that claim. Mm-hmm. Um, he screened the first cut for United Artists uh, executives in the summer of 1980, and it was five hours and 25 minutes long. Oh uh, the end battle sequence alone was 90 minutes. Oh of what? <laughs> of them riding around in a circle? Yes, yes. No. <laughs> uh, he basically just played it in real time. <laughs> yeah. Yep. yep. Uh, uh, you know what's interesting, though? There, there, somebody said that there was... Um, you know, some connective tissue. There's a lot of things that they cut out of that five hour cut um, that are some of the reasons why some of the story beats uh, and the character beats don't quite add up. Um, yeah. That if this was made today, this would probably be an it's a mini series. Yeah. yeah. It, it sure feels it. like, to tell. it feels like Deadwood. Like, you know, it right. should be, it should be more melodrama, more like infighting, you know, character beats. And that's, an, that yeah. Sort of stuff. That's an interesting point, Matt. Cause like that, that's probably my biggest complaint about this movie is that like, if you are not paying the closest possible attention mm-hmm. for literally three hours and 40 minutes, you are not going to know what's going on. Like I had to ke- keep rolling back to figure out. A lot of stuff is implied. A lot of like yeah. dynamics and relationships. Yeah. Um, so when Stephen Bach saw the, the five and a half hour cut, he obviously freaked out. Uh, he hired an Oscar winning uh, editor to come in and help him cut it down. For reasons I can't understand, they let Chimino finish the film uh, and premiere it without ever watching it. Uh, the, the studio execs did not watch it before the premiere. What? And so they all show up to this, you know, glamorous New York City big movie premiere. Um, so the first that, screening for executives was a premiere? Was the premiere. Yeah, oh they had seen the five God. and a half hour cut. They all were extremely upset um, and just forced him to finish it. Uh, The premiere was, by all accounts, a complete disaster. People were bored. People were walking out. During the intermission, Shimino asked a publicist why nobody was drinking the champagne, and she told him to his face, uh, because they hate the movie. The the day after the uh, the premiere, they, um, they were reading the reviews, and one review said, it fails so completely that you might suspect Mr. Chimino sold his soul to the devil to obtain the success of the deer hunter, and the devil has just come around to collect. Oh, man. The reviews were so bad that 
these critics went back and re-reviewed the deer hunter and just oh, trashed yeah yeah um and then the press sort of uh, started to circle the waters uh the press was out for blood specifically for chimino's blood this is going back to what we were talking about with with uh, the deer hunter mm-hmm. they were ready to pounce they mm-hmm. looked at everything that was wrong with this movie and just wanted to assassinate chimino and they took him to task for everything from wasting the millions of dollars to being arrogant to being a fraud this mm-hmm all came out in this huge way um and this is like the day after the premiere and um and so they canceled the release of the movie uh they canceled the rest of the premiere i think they did one more um screening in toronto they were going to do new york toronto and la three nights in a row Mm -hmm. they did the new york they begrudgingly did the toronto but then they Mm -hmm. canceled the la and then chimino uh went to united artists and begged for them to pull the movie from wide release and give him another six months to get his act together wow And for some reason, Stephen Bach said, okay. And they pulled the movie. Um, They tried to play damage control and Mm -hmm. and, control the press and all that kind of stuff. Um, They gave Camino plenty of time to cut the movie down. He cut it down to two hours and 18 minutes or something like that. Uh, Second version opened wide on April 1st, 1981. The film uh, went on to gross $1.3 million its opening weekend and closed after the second week, having only grossed $3.5 million against its $44 $44 million final spend. That's a $40 million loss for United Artists. That's $152 million in today's money, uh, making it one of the biggest box office bombs of its time. I will say that, yeah, the reviews are absurd. Uh, it's obviously not the worst movie ever. No, uh, for sure not. Not the worst movie in the year it came out. Uh, and this idea that it didn't, it's like, narratively it's mess it's a mess you know what i mean like uh, it is there's just it's sprawling but visually it's doing things that very few movies are able to do and uh the and performance wise and character wise i actually think it's got some really strong i think the christopher walken character is the most interesting character in the movie nate yeah i agree um but anyway i yeah i i can you know, Matt, when you were saying that the the press came circling back, you can just see it, and it's 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 funny. I think you know we talked about Fantastic Four, the Josh Trank movie, which is, by the way, Fantastic Four is way worse than. Oh this my movie. god! Like not, it's, nothing it's not is a worse. good movie. Um, but I think that the critics were like eager to tear him down in a way coming off of Chronicle. You know, like there's this like Wonderkin narrative that sometimes pops up, and they want to pounce on that. You know, pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Um, so here's the fallout. Um, several top-level executives at United Artists either were fired or resigned. Stephen Bach was fired. He was the fall guy for this whole thing. Um, he would eventually write a book about the making of this film, which is called Final Cut. Um, highly recommend it if you're interested in seeing um, how a film is made just from the studio perspective. Um, Chimino's career never really recovered. Uh, he would go on to direct four more films. Most of them aren't great. So what went wrong? Um, in, in pushing to outdo himself after the deer hunter and earnestly make what he thought would be a, a gone with the wind level American classic, Chimino bet it all and lost it all. His reputation, his career, and the studio that helped him succeed or not succeed uh, in this case, he did damage to the whole industry with that film and brought an end to the new Hollywood era. He also left behind a trail of destruction to people, to animals. He injured extras. He murdered horses. Um, Did the end justify the means? God, no. Uh, (laughs) um, 
But was it wrong of Chimino to indulge the way he did and spend all that money on a movie? Here is critic Gene Shalit asking Michael Chimino that question. I think that one has to uh, understand what the motives were. Um, is it obscene to, to spend 30 or $40 million on a blatantly commercial effort whose sole purpose is to make more money? Is that obscene? Hmm. And that's it. That's Heaven's Gate. Damn. R.I.P. All those horsies. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot more consideration, it seems like, at the time over the budget. This concern of, you know, oh, can, how can we spend this much money? You know, when uh, Coppola was on the Merv Griffin show, uh, in that quote we had before, you know, it was clear that the host was incredulous that they had spent $32 million. And then this one is $44 million. You know, nowadays it's not even a question. It's not a consideration. You know, it's like, yeah, of course it's an Avengers movie. It's going to be $300 million. That's just how much it is. Well, I feel like the turning point for that to a certain extent though was Titanic because that was like, as we discussed in that episode, that that was a movie where they thought it was mathematically impossible for them to make the money back and that's what the entire narrative was in the press prior to it and it was getting kind of similar press i feel like to heaven's gate in terms of like the behind the scenes of them being like the extras mm -hmm. are being mistreated this is costing 200 million dollars all this stuff mm -hmm. and then that kind of had the magic where it did make the money back and i almost wonder if that was what clicked for executives where they were like no you can spend 200 million dollars and you can make it back yeah i also think i just think it's a silly question like is the ethics of spending that much money on a movie. It's not, you're not lighting money on fire. Like United Artists lost all that money, but hundreds of people were paid for months, if not years of work. Right. That money like gets dispersed into the economy in one form or the other. You know, Chimino did horrible things on this movie separate from that. But this idea that like that money's disappearing, it's disappearing as an investment, but actually it's not disappearing in the way that like WeWork's value has disappeared, for example, you know, like when a company just literally dissipates overnight because it's all fake and inflationary. I just do like when you, the budget goes to paying people at the end of the yeah. day. And obviously too much of it went to paying Chimino to rent his land back to him in this <laughs> yeah. instance. But people are getting paid to do this work. And a lot of them are craftsmen and carpenters and, you know, blue, more blue collar type workers, for example. Train um, men. I yeah, assume. <laughs> yeah. Extras to get punched in the face or whipped yeah, or right. whatever it is. Right. Um, but I just do think it's funny when they're like, they, oh no, you've thrown away X million dollars. That's not, that's not true. It's not like we did a roulette roll. You know what I mean? Right. With it. And then well, just, Chris, let me yeah. put it in a broader perspective here in terms of what this really meant from a, from a business standpoint for United Artists, but, but more importantly, at least for them, uh, the parent company, uh, Transamerica. So Transamerica was the company that at the time owned United Artists. And um, when the film first premiered, um, or I, I'm sorry, when the film second uh, premiered for the second time, two days later, uh, Transamerica decided they wanted to get out of the film business. They sold United Artists to MGM um, and they wrote off the loss. Mm -hmm. um, their uh, stock took a hit for half a day and then it yeah. rebounded the next day. It was a blip on the radar to exactly. the corporation. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, I, I think the, what, what changed was the way that um, studios worked with directors. And this has right. a lot to do yeah. with this film, has a lot to do with One from the Heart and The Cotton Club, which are Francis Ford Coppola films, mm-hmm. um, you know, 1941. And the, these films that were, were massive losses, very expensive movies that were massive losses that um, showed these parent companies of these studios that, um, that there wasn't enough management and there wasn't enough understanding about how a film is made um, to really control them. Mm-hmm. And to create, you know, sort of viable product with them. So what you saw as a result is these studio-run pictures yeah. where they can mm-hmm. control the director, they can control the script and the casting and all these different aspects, and make sure that um, McDonald's is getting their happy meals and, and all that kind of stuff. Like it's yeah. that was really what what came out of this. And um, to your point, though, yeah, I mean, this was the beginning of the the two or three hundred million dollar movie. This showed that some movies do actually uh, deserve to cost this much because they are that valuable and in, in, in so many ways. All right. So Matt, thank you so much for walking us through the second most deadly thing called heaven's gate. Um, and uh, what we like to do at the end of every episode is what went right. This is not meant to paper over the fact that there were a lot of atrocities on this project, but in the interest of uh, keeping things positive during our troubled times, uh, maybe Lizzie, you would like to start as a viewer and then I can follow. And then Matt, you can conclude with your depth of knowledge. So what went right? I feel like I always, I always come down to a performance or actor when we talk about this and that it's going to be the same thing here for me again. Um, I would say what went right here is uh, both the casting of Isabel Huppert, who really is great. And, and I think, went on to have a really incredible career that she's still having. Um, I, I would say the, the casting of her and also the writing of her part is, is very interesting and is something that I hadn't seen a lot of in earlier movies. Um, um, although I wish they had evened out the nudity with a little bit of uh, a little bit of male nudity from the other ones, because I got a lot of full frontal Isabelle Huppert, and I I was interested in seeing uh, either Walken or Christofferson, but didn't get it. <laughs> yeah, she was. You just Chimino's like, and then you'll just take it all off, and that's <laughs> that's the conclusion of the scene. Um, she literally at the like breakfast table, she just takes her entire dress off, and I was like, it, it, oh, oh, yeah. God, all right. <laughs> Yeah, maybe that was the first hint that she was playing a madame, but I, I didn't. <laughs> I also it. didn't get it. <laughs> uh, for me, uh, I agree with everything you just said, Lizzie. What went right for me? The cinematography I thought was incredible. It's beautiful. It looks amazing. Uh, yeah. Every shot could be a uh, be- like gorgeous, realistic painting or beautiful photo, Ansel Adams style, like the color of the time. And then also, I just have to say, Christopher Walken as like a magnetic performer. Every time he's on screen, I'm like, we need more Christopher Walken in this movie. He steals so many of the scenes he's in. Uh, He's so roguishly charming. You're introduced to this character murdering someone in cold blood. And by the third scene with him, you're on his side and you want him to to make it and win uh, Isabel's heart uh, in the end. He has a really interesting arc too as a character. So, And obviously I loved him in The Deer Hunter, etc. He's just just proves again one of the most unique performers that we've had i think in movie history mm-hmm. agreed um and to that you know the the um 
the, the production design, I think, is, is incredible. Obviously, the locations, but the costumes. So each costume was, uh, they, they had 20,000 uh, old photographs of people from that time. And they went through every single one. And Chimino and the costume designer picked the ones that they wanted to include in the movie. Wow. And this costume designer made them one-to-one mm-hmm. recreations of, of every single one. Um, I thought the music was very good. Uh, they went after John Williams to try to get him to do the score and he was too expensive and all these mm-hmm. other guys were too expensive. So the kid that plays the fiddle in the, the roller oh. skating sequence, that's David Mansfield. Yeah. He scored the movie Whoa. and the score is brilliant. Yeah. Um, and he would have a whole career. Uh, he, he composed The Apostle, Transamerica, he did, I think, all of Chimino's other films. Um, so that was another one of the good things to come out of it. You know, yeah, yeah I go back and forth on this all the time. Um, like, I can't knock Chimino's effort here. I mean, this the level of ambition, the level of obsession, it, it's all on screen. It's not like he mm-hmm. went and spent $30 million and came back with a cheap-looking movie. Like, it's really one of the most intoxicating, uh, visually impressive, and, mm-hmm. and overwhelming films I've ever seen. The coda on this, you know, this whole thing is that in 2012, Criterion selected Heaven's Gate uh, for restoration. And they went back to the original negative and they restored the footage with Michael Cimino sitting right there. And the, the producer basically says, it's all here. Like, mm-hmm. we had it. This is really something. And we had it. And it's on celluloid. It's, it's here. And so, you know, that release of the Criterion um, brought a new wave of reviews of the film. And it's had this second life where people now recognize it as not a masterpiece, but a, a very impressive film. And when understanding the story behind it and all of the things that it led to, an important film. I think uh, Chimino got what he was after in the end, but it took him 30 years to do it. Yeah. And on that note, we recommend you pick up a copy of the Blu-ray Criterion Collection release of Heaven's Gate. Thank you again, Matt, for joining us this week. We had a blast. Please reach out if you have any troubled films you would like us to cover in one of our episodes. We look forward to diving away from the high-class auteurs of the 70s into the lowbrow trash of the 1980s. Well, we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again, guys. Make sure you tune in next week. And if you can, rate and review us on iTunes. Five stars, five stars. One star. I don't care. Just give us a review. Yeah, we'll take anything. What Went Wrong is a Sad Boom podcast presented by Lizzie Bassett, Chris Winterbauer, and this week's guest host, Matt Dedish. Editing and music by David Bowman with cover art from Euthana Uos. <laughs>